Thank you for tuning into this webinar, How to Win the Talent Wars Without Overpaying. This webinar is hosted by AGH University and presented by AGH Employer Solutions. AGH Employer Solutions is a team of professionals that helps employers, business owners, and human resource professionals hire, compensate, manage, engage, train, and retain one of their most critical resources, their talent. Today's speaker is Carrie Cox. Carrie is a Senior Organizational Development Consultant for AGH Employer Solutions, Organizational Development, and Family Business Services Group. Carrie has experience in a variety of human resource functions, including a thorough knowledge of labor laws, compensation structures, employee classifications, benefits administration, performance management, and human resource best practices. She served clients in a number of industries, including manufacturing, construction, banking, and not-for-profits. Carrie is a member of the national and local chapters of the Society for Human Resource Management, certified as a professional in human resources by the Human Resources Certification Institute, and as a certified practitioner for the Myers-Briggs Type Indicator. When the job market is hot and the battle for talented employees is fierce, you must compensate competitively, not only in the currency of pay, but also in other ways most relevant to employees, such as benefits, workplace flexibility, and connection to work. Different employee types seek different rewards and benefits beyond pay, so leverage these differences to improve your recruitment and retention. Well, good afternoon, everybody. Thanks for joining us today. Hope you're all having a great day. Um, today we're going to talk about uh, the things Mike described, so it's a pretty hot market right now for recruiting and retaining talent, so we're going to get into some of those things that you need to be aware of and know as you consider those options. Uh, Mike provided you with an overview of some of what I do, but let me really boil it down for you. So I help organizations with their pain points related to their people. That's kind of the short of it. That may include anything from dealing with a tricky performance issue, helping with management training or leadership development, revising employment policies, helping find good talent, and many other things. One of the things that I get asked about most often is compensation. Employees always want to be paid more or get more for what they're giving you. So what can we do to address that when we don't have unlimited salary budget? That's what we're going to be talking about today. So there certainly are some things you can do to be more competitive when you're looking at attracting and retaining talent. And it's not all about cash. In fact, it's not usually about cash. In today's webinar, we'll look at current trends in pay, look at some of the different components as we think through what total compensation means and what you offer. We'll consider the differences that generations may place on some of these components, and then identify other currencies that you may be able to pay your employees in that may not be cash. So in recent years, we've gone from the Great Recession, in which layoffs were common and employees valued job security over other factors, to a place where competition for talent is really fierce again, especially in hard-to-fill positions and industries. And in a lot of cases, those happen to be in technical positions, those that require additional training and education. What we know today is overall the economy is doing pretty well. Um, job growth has been fairly strong. Job listings are more abundant and more Americans are voluntarily leaving their jobs for other positions and those are indicators that it's become more of an employee's job market. And typically when it's easier for employees to find jobs, that means it's harder for employers to attract and retain the best employees. When the labor markets tighten, we tend to see wages increase, but because the U.S. economy is only growing at 2%, it's difficult for employers to raise wages, so salary budgets aren't really increasing like we typically have seen in the past economic growth cycles. They've been hovering at or just below 3% the last several years, and World at Work released a survey in July that indicated organizations are planning for 3% again in 2017 as they look forward to planning for um, pay increases. The Conference Board and the Economic Research Institute also showed 3% increases in their respective surveys. When you look at salaries adjusted for inflation, they've actually fallen 3.1% since 2008, according to a recent Corn Ferry Hay Group study in which they sampled entry, mid-level, and senior management roles. And that number is even worse for some of the more entry-level positions. So if it's harder to find good employees and salary budgets aren't increasing, what can we do as employers? 
There are a lot of factors to consider for an employer to be the place where people want to work. We addressed several of those high-level strategies in a webinar earlier this year, and your pay practice certainly weave into those. So let me do just a brief review of those concepts we talked about previously. So some of the things that you have to think about in terms of being that place where employees want to work um, are listed here. There are areas that can help you distinguish yourself from other organizations that are competing with you for talent. The first one is to really know your why and sell it. So what is that purpose that your organization um, has in place? Organizations that have a clearly defined purpose, have a distinctive culture, and certain types of individuals are going to succeed in those organizations. And their pay and benefits programs align with their organizational values and why or purpose for serving others through the program, services, and products that they provide. Let me give you an example. So if the company I work for is a healthcare-related company, you might expect our why or our purpose to be centered around patients' health and improving their health. That same company would want to align its total compensation programs with the same why, not only improving our patients' health, but creating a healthy environment to work in, which may include access to good health care, but also wellness programs that incentivize healthy behaviors. Of course, this is not limited to healthcare companies, but it would be especially in alignment with the healthcare-related company's why or purpose. As another example, in a manufacturing company, the why, the reason that they exist or what they do, may be related to building innovative products that make life easier for the end user to allow them more time for their individual interests, which may include time with family and volunteering in the community. So they produce a product that makes life easier for others providing programs that allow the employees to also have flexibility to pursue, pursue their interests, including specific volunteer opportunities the company coordinates, would align with that company's why as well. So you, you just have to connect the dots on some of those things. Another thing that you can do at a higher level is engage current employees in order to keep your current workforce stable. So it's not just about going and recruiting talented employees. We've got to keep the good employees that we have in place today and create an engaged workforce um, as, as we continue to look for talent to join the organization. Don't put all of your efforts in programs for new employees. Part of having engaged employees means being aware of what your employees think about your programs, including your compensation and benefits programs. So it, it's a good idea to keep a awareness and a pulse on what people are thinking. Making sure your compensation is perceived as fair by employees is the foundation for any employee engagement initiatives you undertake. Because if pay isn't perceived as fair for the work that's done, then your programs or initiatives to increase engagement will not have much traction or any traction at all. A third um, area that you can look at in terms of recruiting and retaining good talent is providing on-the-job training and educational programs. So that could be through internships or professional development opportunities, even things like financial planning or personal development programs that address the whole person. This is an area that factors into the total compensation picture. Development opportunities are a way to invest in your employees and provide them with skills needed on the job, and it's not just the hard skills. Development and soft skills like communication are critical for the job and lacking by many. So as we think about moving into what we can do in terms of pay to be competitive, we've got to look at the total compensation package. And it's not just about that cash that they take home on a weekly or biweekly or monthly basis. So we've got um, several different buckets that we're going to look at today. And I want to just briefly describe what we're going to talk about in each one before we get into more depth. So when we talk about pay, we're thinking about typically cash or short-term types of pay. So this is the general wage or salary that your employees earn. Also would consider uh, performance-based pay if you offer that, or bonus or variable pay, commissions, incentive pay, profit sharing, those kind of things that they're going to see um, on their paychecks or more regularly, even if it's not on that regular paycheck. Another bucket is uh, health and welfare benefits. So that's an area to consider in your total compensation uh, discussions. This includes things like health and dental and vision coverage or life insurance, short-term and long-term disability coverage, 
Um, also flexible spending accounts and contributions there or to health savings accounts. An employee assistance program and your wellness programs would all factor into this category. Another category would be retirement benefits that you offer. So this could be by way of 401k or IRAs, pension plans that you provide, long-term incentive options or stock options, and then profit sharing can fit into this um, category as well. Another category is retirement benefits. So thinking about, um, oh, sorry, excuse me, just mentioned that, um, paid time off. So thinking about holidays, vacation, sick, PTO, maternity or paternity leave, uh, personal leave, bereavement, military leave, jury duty, jury duty pay, or any other forms of paid time off that you provide. And then finally, we've got another category, which is kind of the catch-all for things. Um, so this is anything else that the employer would invest money in on behalf of the employee. And this is where you can get very creative and make your organization really really stand out as a place employees want to work. Included in this category would be things like training and development opportunities, professional memberships, other perks like cell phone reimbursement, uh, golfing, meals, gym memberships, clothing allowances, those kind of things, and in addition to relocation expenses that you might provide to applicants or for promotions as well. So wide variety of um, different aspects that we want to look at and we'll get into in more detail as we consider total compensation. Before we get started on that, we want to go ahead and load our first pay, our polling question. So that first question is just, in what area of total compensation do you feel your organization is most competitive in recruiting and retaining talent? So of the five we just talked about? Is it pay, health and benefits, health and welfare benefits, retirement benefits, paid time off, or do you do really well in that other catch-all category? So it looks like the majority feel like you're most competitive in the paid time off um, benefits that you provide, followed pretty closely behind by health and welfare benefits. So a number of you feel like you're just not as competitive with pay or retirement benefits. So we'll be talking about all of these areas, so hopefully you can um, get some good ideas from this webinar as to what you might be able to do differently. So before we um, really get into the details, we've got to know what our overall strategy is as we look at total compensation. So sometimes it's best to diversity, diversify. We know that in terms of our financial investments, um, we need to diversify. We get told that all the time. But it's also true of your total compensation strategy. It may not be best to put all of your um, compensation dollars into just a straight pay or salary. You may need to also think about a bonus option. And certainly for certain positions, that works well. Um, same thing with should you put more dollars towards learning and development or different aspects. So that's something to consider. What are you doing organizationally? Because different people are motivated by different work factors. For some, it's all about the money. For others, a rich health plan is really important to them. And for still others, it's not the pay or the benefits that get them out of bed. It's the workplace flexibility that's offered. So it's really important to understand what is motivating for your employees and know that it may be different for each one. The organizations that excel in their total compensation strategies will be the ones that understand most fully what motivates their employees and that design their reward systems to influence those motivations. The stage of a business cycle may also influence what your compensation strategy is. For example, a startup may put a higher percentage of their total compensation into pay and short-term incentives based on meeting key business goals because the business needs to hit those key milestones or goals to be successful or the business just won't be in existence very long. A well-established and growing business may put more into longer-term incentives or programs for employees that encourage those employees to stay with the company longer. They're more concerned about retention. Strategies can be different depending upon where you live and for different positions in your organization too. So one company I work with set their compensation structures using the 75th percentile market data. So they recognized a need to pay better than market. They had to be more competitive in their community than the other employers. But for certain positions like customer service call takers, 
they paid below that level because in the city where they lived and where the company was, there wasn't such competition for those kind of individuals that did well in that position and they felt like they didn't have to compensate at that higher level to get the best talent. Industry's type can also influence your compensation strategy. Traditionally, we've expected government entities to perhaps pay less than market pay but offer a rich benefits package to make up for it. Anymore, I'm not sure that's the most effective strategy with today's competitive environment, but it's certainly something to consider. Where do you adjust your dollars? A lot of factors go into determining what that total compensation strategy looks like. So make sure you're considering that as you go through your process and look at how you pay your employees. Throughout our discussions today, we're going to address how the generations may place different value on different aspects of total compensation. I'm going to assume that most of you know a bit about the different generations, but um, let's do a quick summary um, just so everybody's using the same information here. So we have five generations potentially in the workforce. Um, we've got our traditionalists, that's the oldest generation, and we see fewer and fewer of those every day. Some of you may not have any traditionalists left in, their, in your company at this point. Um, the next generation would be the baby boomers. So they're aged in their 50s to 70s roughly, um, typically born in the years 1946 to 1964, and those are kind of estimates. You see different dates and different publications sometimes. They really want to work. So even though they're at retirement age, they want to keep working. And so you might have an opportunity to, to see them in consultant-type roles where they're still providing information and knowledge for your company, but it may be in a way that just works better for them or more flexible if they reach retirement. They've also seen some slower growth in wealth than anticipated, especially with the recession, so they may be working longer. And their average tenure in companies is about 15 years. They have a real career mindset. And they may, not to, they may not know what to do if they aren't working. So some of them aren't ready to retire or don't know how to retire. And there really are a lot of baby boomers, so they were raised with an expectation to compete, and that really drives them. So in school or for jobs or promotions, they're very competitive. They also grew up in the post-war economy of affluence, so they had things. Um, it wasn't just about surviving anymore, and they were made to feel special by their parents. Television influenced their lives in that the entire country and even the world to some degree could see the same thing at the same time, so they shared these experiences together that shaped them. Um, and for these reasons, they tend to be very loyal and self-driven. They're closer to retirement, and this will drive some of their compensation needs, whether it's more money for retirement or extended health care benefits into retirement to supplicate their Medicare. The next generation, Generation X, they're aged roughly in their 30s to 50s, so born in years 1965 to 1979 or 80 is usually where I see that. They um, work to live, so work is a means to an end for them to have some fun in life and do the things they want to do. They tend to be more of a free agent type, negotiating their own deals because they recognize that there's just not that loyalty that was in place with the boomer generation. And their incomes have also been somewhat disappointing, again, coming out of the recession. And their tenure tends to be around five years per company. So if the previous generation was a result of the baby boom after the war, then Generation X was more of a baby bust. They're sandwiched between two much larger generations with baby boomers and millennials, so they have less influence, whether that's at work or in consumer choices. Um, they tend to be stuck behind boomers at work, so they may leave an employer to get ahead elsewhere. Divorce rates really skyrocketed in their formative years, so Gen Xers may have felt unwanted and learned at an early age that life is complicated. There was little confidence in the economy as older Generation X um, individuals came into the job market, so notions of lifetime employment and job security went out the window with them. They grew up on cable TV, so there was more access to information and different perspectives, so they learned that you can't believe everything you're told. For these reasons, they tend to be more pessimistic and self-reliant and have difficulty trusting organizations. 
this drives their compensation needs in that they will generally want total compensation options that are more certain. Millennials would be our next generation, so they're in their 20s and 30s, years um, roughly 1980 to 1997, 96 I see sometimes too. They really value cooperation and loyalty and family, um, but what drives them in addition to that in terms of compensation is debt. They have huge student loan debts. They're purchasing new houses. Um, so some of those things will factor into what they value in compensation. And their average tenure in a company is 18 to 24 months. So they've been raised with very heavy parental involvement, just as baby boomers were the result of the baby boom, millennials were the result of a second baby boom, or sometimes you hear it called an echo boom. That heavy parental involvement led them to believe that managers would also be heavily involved in their careers and their jobs that they were doing. And they were encouraged to express their feelings at home and told that they were special and could do anything. So this led them to be confident. They were raised as consumers with many options for everything, so they're used to having options and getting what they want. They were raised on technology, which gives them access to information and more efficient ways of doing things. And they experienced 9-11 at a young age, leading them to believe that tomorrow might not come and to not wait to do something important. They also are the products of what is referred to as emerging adulthood, which means they spend more time figuring out their paths in life because their parents have encouraged it, so they may delay getting out on their own or getting married or even going to college, for instance. For all of these reasons, they tend to be more idealistic, value fairness and advancement, and that advancement may be at your company or someone else's if you're not providing it for them. They're also more idealistic with compensation, so will be more motivated by high goals or incentives. Commission programs or profit sharing or rewards bucks may be ways to achieve this with them. And then the other generation that's coming on board, so I've heard it referred to as Generation Z or Homelanders. We just don't know too much about them yet because they're so new, but here's what we do know. So they're likely born after 96, 97. Um, I've seen it even later than that in some publications. Um, but I've referred them, like I said, referred to as Generation C. Um, they're the most diverse generation in history. They have the shortest attention span, eight seconds I think is what it is. And then they're the world's first true digital natives. They came of age post 9-11 and in a world that's been saturated with terrorism, war, and economic distress. So this has likely made them to be more target-oriented, goal-oriented planning careers and seeking job security much earlier than previous generations. They're eager to work and will likely be in your workforce soon if they're not already there. And that means many of them will skip college, many more than previous generations, heading straight to work. They tend to be more entrepreneurial and value individualism. So that gives you a little bit of background on each of the generations. But remember, generational summaries are generalizations. There isn't a one-size-fits-all solution for everyone, and the information presented here today is just to guide you, but it doesn't always work for every member of, of a generation. So before we get into those uh, total compensation aspects, let's go ahead and move to our next poll question. And we just want to know, does your organization consider generational differences as you're developing your total compensation strategies? So yes, no, or not sure. Not very many of you are considering generational differences as you can as you look at your total compensation, just 17%. 56% uh, said nope, not at all, 28% not sure. So this is an, an area to really think about as you as you consider the boomers leaving our workplaces and the millennial group coming in, because that millennial group is going to be quite large. In five years, it'll be 40% of our population, and in 10 years, it'll be 75% of our workforce. So you've got to think about those strategies that appeal to the bulk of your workforce. So let's dive into each of the areas of total compensation in a bit more detail and help us assess how we might be able to adjust our practices to make sure we're hiring and retaining the best talent. Pay is just one area of that package, but it's such an important one. 
If you don't have pay right, then whatever else you have to offer doesn't even matter to most people. So it's really important to review your pay ranges or your pay structures compared to market rates at least every couple of years and more so if you're having difficulty in recruiting and you think it might be due to pay. Um, you don't have to do a full study necessarily every couple of years, but you want to look at a few benchmark positions at least to determine do I need to look at things or do we need to adjust and, and consider doing a full study. In a survey by the Society for Human Resource Management recently, 34% of HR professionals said they had difficulty hiring because salaries are not competitive for the market. And 23% said candidates have actually rejected their compensation package. So it looks like, especially in certain positions, that compensation package is really important, but remember, pays one aspect of it. You've got to look at what the total package is and not just base pay. So it's just one piece of the puzzle. So let me give you an example. Recently I was helping recruit for a sales position for a client and the base salary wasn't the most competitive. It was in alignment with market rates, but it wasn't going to really entice someone to change jobs. In addition to that base salary, they also offered a bonus potential. And that bonus potential when you looked at kind of typical sales for that region would add about 10 to 15 percent to the base salary. So that was pretty good. But actually the typical sales for the territory was without a dedicated sales rep in that region. So really the bonus potential was a lot higher and more likely to pay out even more than that 10 to 15 percent. So someone motivated in that area, um, that could be a really attractive deal for them. As we looked at even the other parts of compensation for this position, like providing a car and credit card for expenses and most current technology to support the employee on the road, those other things, the total package looks even better and really sold itself. So you've always got to have it in that lens or that framework, framework as you're talking pay with um, applicants and people that you're bringing on board. Baby boomers and Gen Xers may be a little bit more motivated by pay at this point in their careers, especially as they start preparing for retirement and realizing they don't have as much as they thought they would. Uh, remember, I mentioned their incomes have been a little bit disappointing. But on the other side of the equation, millennials are just starting out in life. So they've got families and new homes, and they may be saddled with student loan debt. So the reality really is pay is important to everyone. Author Daniel Pink, who wrote the book Drive, The Surprising Truth About What Motivates Us, said this of pay. Of course, the starting point for any discussion of motivation in the workplace is a simple fact of life. People have to earn a living. Salary, contract payments, some benefits, a few perks are what I call baseline rewards. If someone's baseline rewards aren't adequate or equitable, her focus will be on the unfairness of her situation and the anxiety of her circumstance. You'll get neither the predictability of intrinsic motivation nor the weirdness of intrinsic motivation. You'll get very little motivation at all. The best use of money as a motivator is to pay people enough to take the issue of money off the table. I completely agree with Mr. Pink's thoughts. This is why you have to ensure your pay is competitive. You want to be able to sell the other great aspects of what you offer as an employer because usually that's where you can really differentiate yourself. So you need to be competitive on that base pay, but remember there are other types of pay beyond that base wage or salary. And those other types of pay can be very motivating to individuals. So in a, another um, Society for Human Resource Management survey, about 51% of organizations offer an incentive bonus plan where criteria are set in advance and if they're met, the employee receives additional compensation. This can really drive high performance when the program is proper, properly set up. And 44% of organizations offer this type of plan to their non-executive employees too. So it can be a way to set yourself apart there. Forms of bonus or incentive pay can be highly rewarding and motivating for employees, especially in certain roles where employees have direct influence over the outcomes of their work. But you have to make sure that you're setting the right incentives. If employees aren't incentivized for the right behaviors, they may take shortcuts or you may see results that weren't intended or are not desired. So as an example, consider a call center employee who is incentivized based on the number of calls he takes. 
it's possible that the employee might disconnect longer problem calls because they take more time to resolve. So he's not answering as many calls, that performance bonus goes down if that's the only metric that he is evaluated upon. So you've got to be really clear in, in what those goals are and what you incent people with. Millennials may be highly motivated by variable pay forms. So remember, they're the idealists. So they will see those lofty goals and think they will attain them and the compensation will match. Gen X, however, tends to be more pessimistic, so they may not be as responsive to those high variable pay options because they don't trust in organizations as much, and they believe that even if they hit those goals, their pay may still not be there. Profit sharing is another option to consider in terms of additional incentives provided to employees to supplement their pay. It may not be as motivating for employees if they don't see a direct line of sight to what they're doing in their roles or if the payout frequency is too low. So you want to consider that as you structure your profit sharing programs. One company I work with provides a profit sharing bonus annually when the company is profitable but employees have really come to take it for granted because the company is always profitable, so they just look at that as, you know, a check mark. We get it every year, and it doesn't really drive the desired behaviors in the workplace. Employee stock purchase plans are an option you might want to consider to supplement employees' compensation, but we've really seen a decrease in the prevalence of those programs from about 28% 10 years ago. Um, to just 9% of organizations offering them in 2016. This benefit allows employees to purchase shares of company stock, usually through a discount or direct deduction from their paychecks, and can work both in publicly traded and privately held companies. So it, it could certainly be a way to motivate or incent employees. Long-term incentives are another option, especially as we look at executive compensation. Long-term incentives help recruit and retain high-performing executives and help align their behaviors with the long-term financial interests of the company and its stakeholders. So some considerations in, in that area would be stock options or restricted stock, performance shares, phantom plans, or other forms of equity compensation, and then certainly some cash programs that are long-term incentives. So that covers pay. <laughs> pretty quickly there, um, but don't as underestimate the value of employees and what, how they place value on employee benefits that make up that total compensation package. So according to a Glassdoor survey in 2015, 80% of workers preferred new or additional benefits to a pay increase. 80% of workers would rather have other benefits rather than a pay increase. That's pretty significant. The top five benefits that contribute to an employee's job satisfaction are health insurance, vacation and PTO, a pension plan, a 401k plan, and retirement plan. So let's dive into one aspect of employee benefits, which is health and welfare benefits um, that help to contribute to an employee's total comp. So there are a lot of different options in this category. You have very basic options such as health, dental, and vision insurance and also short and long-term disability and life insurance protections for income replacement options. Companies may offer other options for supplementing those options, including various forms of insurance, like hospital and cancer policies or long-term care insurance. Most employers offer these types of benefits in the insurance area, so the question becomes how do you differentiate yourself as an employer that can attract and retain the best employees? Some options that are less common include pet insurance or identity theft insurance is becoming more popular. If insurance is more of a traditional route for your offering of employee benefits, you may need to consider how rich your benefits are or need to be to attract and keep the right employees. Most employers offer health and dental insurance, but could you be creative in how your plans work or how the benefits are funded? For example, if you have a healthy workforce without a lot of expense for claims or prescription drugs, it might make more sense for most of your employees to be on a high deductible health plan and to incentivize them to go there, you may want to make a contribution to their health savings account that helps them pay for those medical expenses when they actually do have them. And the cool thing about that is if they don't need to use that money for medical expenses, the money is still theirs to keep 
and can even act as a source of income in their retirement if it ends up staying in their accounts that long. How many of you are really assessing those different options that are out there based on the workforce you have today or will have in the future? We all need to be doing this and looking at those options and considering what are some of the different things that we can do? What's creative? How do we think outside of the box? Part of how you structure your employee benefits goes back to understanding your company's why and engaging your workforce. So for example, if I work for an employer whose mission is to place rescued pets in permanent homes, offering pet insurance may be an attractive option for my employees. If I work in a professional services firm where time is money, on-site health services like wellness checks or telemedicine services may be a great benefit for my employees. You've got to look at who your workforce is today and in the future and design your benefits programs around them. Wellness program incentives can also be a way to set your organization apart, but again, you have to know your workforce. Can you provide an incentive that encourages healthy behaviors? Total wellness is another thing to consider. Why do we stop at physical wellness? Consider if there are options you can provide your employees to encourage their total well-being. So think about physical health, mental wellness, financial wellness, all of those different aspects. Providing budget planning or debt management services for employees may be a very effective benefit that employees appreciate and that can increase productivity. Lockton Retirement Services found that one in five workers reportedly feels extremely stressed mostly because of their job or finances. And those reporting high levels of stress were more than four times as likely to suffer from symptoms of fatigue, headaches, depression, or other ailments. They were also twice as likely to report poor health overall, leading to more sick days, increased absenteeism, and decreased productivity. A new study on financial worries from Willis Towers Watson found that workers who say money concerns keep them from doing their jobs lost three and a half days to absence and 12.4 days due to presenteeism in 2015. Presenteeism is being at work but not fully function, not fully focused on the job so you're not functioning at your peak capacity. So this equates to about 16 days a year or three weeks, over three weeks of lost time. Helping employees manage their life stress outside of work definitely will help them in their productivity while they are at work. I have people ask me that often, why should we worry about what they're doing outside of work? Well, it really does impact what they're doing on the job as well. The other consideration for you is how different generations view health and welfare benefits. Younger workers may not as easily see the value of a life insurance policy, but boomers may place great value on this benefit. Baby boomers who are moving to Medicare at 65 and still working may not have a need for your health insurance benefits, so consider if there are other places where you can be an attractive employer with supplemental insurance benefits for them. Any generation may be able to benefit from financial wellness programs. They may just have different priorities for their money. So you always have to consider your workforce, consider the workforce coming in, thinking about who do we have in place and, and what are their needs and how will they be changing in the future. So let's go ahead and load our next poll question, and we just want to know, do you provide health and welfare benefits beyond the traditional insurance options? So beyond health, dental, vision, uh, short long-term disability, other types of health insurance? Yes, no, or not sure. And we'll go ahead and push out the results. It looks like we're pretty evenly split here. Half of you say no, almost as many say yes. We do provide other benefits. A um, handful of you weren't sure in your response there. So again, this is an opportunity. If half of you aren't doing something beyond the traditional options, an opportunity for you to differentiate yourself by looking at some of those other options. And a lot of times, those don't have to even be employer-funded. Employees just appreciate having the deduction taken out of their check and the ability to have that managed through a work deduction versus um, having to pay that bill on their own. So certainly something to consider. Another area to think about is what are the retirement benefits that you're off offering your employees? So retirement options have changed significantly over the last 50 years. 
traditionalists were motivated by working for the same employer their entire lives, and then they knew they got a nice retirement pension at the end. With boomers, that changed. There were so many boomers, so competition for jobs increased, which meant people didn't work in the same place their entire lives. That led to changes from fully funded pensions to employees contributing to their own retirement funds and employers paying a matching percentage. But then we also wanted it to be portable portable because jobs aren't for life and there's so much uncertainty, so employees want more ownership and direction in their retirement funds. 90% of organizations currently offer a 401k or similar defined contribution retirement savings plan, and 74% of organizations provide an employer match for this plan. And this is an area where you can differentiate, differentiate yourself as an employer by providing creative matching options or solutions for employees. Employers may also want to consider the vesting schedules. You may attract a different employee if they are immediately vested at 100% rather than vesting over their tenure with the company. In addition to the traditional 401k, organizations may offer a Roth 401k that may offer employees future tax advantages over their retirement funds, or maybe they're even perceived tax advantages. It depends on how folks manage their money. There's been a large increase in the number of organizations offering a Roth 401k or similar option to their employees, as well as allowing the conversion of funds from a traditional 401k to a Roth 401k account. So that may be something that you look at too. Retirement funding can come through that traditional 401k or Roth 401k, but it can also come through profit sharing. So I mentioned that earlier as a form of cash pay, but some employers use profit sharing as a way to supplement employees' retirement funds. That may be an incentive worth considering that encourages an employee to stay with the organization longer term. And some boomers lost portions of their retirements in the Great Recession and may not be fully ready for retirement. Allowing a flexible work schedule can help them transition to retirement and allow more time for you to address the knowledge drain that they'll leave when they vacate. Retirement incentives can be pretty powerful for millennials. So traditionally, I think with Gen X especially, they didn't save as much early on, but millennials experienced the Great Recession firsthand while they were very young in their careers. So they watched their boomer and Generation X parents lose some of their retirement funds. So they see the importance of starting saving early. It's important to provide retirement options that speak to them those that are flexible, portable, and allow them to own it and have options that they can control. They will likely not be in the same company in 30 years as they are today, so they want to make sure they have those options that allow them to take the retirement savings they've earned with them, including the amount that you're matching for them. For executives, there are often additional supplemental executive retirement plans and elective deferral plans. About two-thirds of organizations use these additional retirement options for executives, so you'll want to ensure that your executive, co your executive compensation options are competitive, too. In addition to qualified retirement plans that we just discussed, there are non-qualified retirement plans. And what that means is it's a type of tax-deferred, employer-sponsored retirement plan that falls outside of ERISA guidelines, ERISA being Employee Retirement Income Security Act. Non-qualified plans are designed to meet specialized retirement needs for key executives and other select employees. These plans are also exempt from the discriminatory and top-heavy testing that qualified plans are subject to. Because they're not subject to ERISA guidelines, employers have a lot more flexibility to customize their plans to be unique to their organization and those key employees. Non-qualified plans can help employers to attract key employees through significant benefits that are deferred to a future date, which can also ensure long-term commitment by the new hire. It can really help level the playing field to be as good as or better than other offers. These types of plans can be attractive to key employees because they have favorable tax treatment. So there are four main types of non-qualified plans, deferred compensation, executive bonus, group carve-out plans, and split dollar life insurance plans. The contributions made to these plans are usually non-deductible to the employer and are usually taxable to the employee as well. So that doesn't sound as favorable, right? But they allow employees to defer taxes until retirement when they are presumably in a lower tax bracket. 
Non-qualified plans are often used to provide specialized forms of compensation to key executives or key employees in lieu of making them partners or part owners in the comp company or corporation. So let's talk about these in a little bit more detail. Um, there are two types of deferred comp plans. There's true deferred compensation plans and salary continuation plans. Both are designed to provide executives with supplemental retirement income. The primary difference is how they're funded. So with a true deferred comp plan, the key employee or executive defers a portion of his or her income, which is often bonus income. With a salary continuation plan, the employer funds the future retirement benefit on behalf of the executive. Both plans allow for the earnings to accumulate tax deferred and the income received at retirement would be taxed as ordinary income. Executive bonus plans are pretty straightforward and the most versatile in these non-qualified plans. They're funded in the name of the employee and are often portable. So these plans usually consist of payments into a cash value life insurance policy or a combination policy that provides a package of benefits such as life, critical illness, disability, and long-term care coverage. For example, an executive is issued a life insurance policy with premiums paid by the employer as a bonus to the executive. Premium payments are considered compensation, so they're deductible to the employer. The bonus payments are taxable to the executive. In some cases, the employer may pay a bonus in excess of the premium amount to help offset the taxes that the executive would owe as well. A group carve-out plan is another life insurance arrangement in which the employer carves out a key employee's group life insurance in excess of $50,000 and replaces it with an individual policy. So the advantage here is the key employee would avoid the imputed income on group life insurance in excess of $50,000. The employer then redirects the premium it would have paid on the excess group life insurance to the individual policy owned by the employee. And then finally, a split dollar plan represents a partnership between two parties, which in this case would be an employer and employee, and it's used when an employer wants to provide a key employee with a permanent life insurance policy. So under this arrangement, a policy is purchased on the life of the employee and ownership of the policy is divided between the employer and the employee. The employer retains a percentage of ownership in the death benefit equal to the cost of the premiums the employer paid while the employee remain, receives the remainder. So at death, the main portion of the death benefit is paid to the employee's beneficiaries while the employer receives a portion equal to its investment in the plan. So let's talk about paid time off, another bucket in the total compensation um, options. So that's an area where we've seen a lot more movement in the marketplace. More employers have moved to a paid time off system, which is more flexible, where all time is lumped together rather than those separate buckets for sick and pay and vacation pay. And this can be very effective in organizations where people can use their time responsibly. Some of the other trends that we've seen with paid time off is providing unlimited time off. So research shows that when organizations have unlimited time off policies, employees actually take less time off when it, than when they have fixed time off policies. But you have to be really clear on the expectations. Employees have to have those clear expe expectations set for the work that needs to be done and the deadlines they need to meet, and managers have to hold employees accountable. So it only works well in certain organizations. Another uh, trend we're seeing is expanded maternal and paternal leave. So while larger organizations are required to provide time off to employees under the Family and Medical Leave Act, it is not required to be paid time off. They have to give the time, but it doesn't have to be paid. Companies with paid maternity and paternity leave can be very attractive to the generations who are having children. Employers that have more flexibility in the time off policies may appeal to millennials and older workers. Older workers may need more flexibility as they get close to retirement for a number of different reasons. Millennials don't see as much of a divide between work and life outside of work, so it's important for them to have flexibility in their days to tend to the personal things, just as they may tend to work in the evenings. Again, they don't have as much of that division or separation. Gen Xers who work to live, they may be more motivated by additional time off or by keeping work at work and not having to tend to things in the evenings or on the weekends. 
Time off to volunteer is another perk that can be especially appealing to millennials. So millennials are known for their social consciousness, and studies have shown that they value brands and employers that emphasize doing good in the world. So it's a double perk, incentivizing employees and helping the community. So let's go ahead and move to our next poll question. And here we're just asking, what forms of paid time off do you provide? And you can select multiple options here. Bereavement leave, maternal, paternal leave, elder care leave, unlimited time off, or only vacation slash sick slash PTO. So most of you are providing bereavement leave as well as uh, vacation sick and PTO. Over a quarter of you are providing maternal and paternal leave, 17% elder care, and 6% of you are actually doing unlimited time off, so getting on some of those earlier trends there in the time off field. So again, another, another area where you might want to evaluate how can you differentiate yourself. So the fifth area of total compensation includes just about anything that doesn't fit elsewhere. So you can get really creative in, in what you're doing here. Learning and development opportunities is one aspect that's going to appeal to all of the generations. Don't think that boomers don't want to learn and grow, grow in their roles just because they're a little bit older or further along in their careers. Gen X employees are still hungry for knowledge and development at this stage in their careers, and millennials certainly value it as they're in the earlier stages in their careers. Millennials want to contribute as well as learn, so providing them with opportunities to work on new and different team projects can be a valuable motivator for them. The problem with this area is that about a third of HR professionals said that they, their organizations don't even have a training budget. It's really difficult to provide these opportunities for employees when you haven't prioritized that need in the organization's budget. Learning and development opportunities don't even have to be formal training. There may be cross-departmental work that employees work on, or maybe different job skills or functions that can be learned. Learning is learning, whether it contributes to the current role and those job tasks, or something that may be useful in a future role. For millennials, it's important to outline their career path and earnings potential, especially if there isn't a clear path for advancement as we've traditionally thought of it. So remember, their average tenure is 18 to 24 months. The reason they leave is so that they can continue to progress in their careers. So it's really important for you to make sure you outline how they can do that at your company, at your organization, even if it doesn't mean a title change. They want to continue to learn and grow and contribute. Educational assistance is another piece in the total compensation equation. It helps the employee, but also builds skills the employer can use. And about half of the companies surveyed in that um, Society for Human Resource Management Employee Benefits Survey, I've been um, citing stats from, offer graduate and undergraduate assistance, about half. So this benefit can really be of a benefit to any generation, depending upon their uh, background and experience. I mentioned this already, but it's worth diving into a little bit more detail because it can be most valuable um, and more valuable than a lot of the benefits we've addressed even. So having flexible work arrangements is a great way to attract and retain certain workers, especially millennials and employees over 55. So millennials have shown an increased preference for having greater control over their own schedules, and many place greater emphasis on the culture of the organization rather than some of those compensation-related aspects. Older employees, so 55 and older, they tend to um, be relied on for filling those highly skilled positions. They're well experienced, so they may need some flexibility in scheduling for a variety of reasons, maybe caring for family members who are older or they're starting to phase into retirement. So you want to consider alternatives for work. Do employees really need to be on site from 8 to 5? or can they work when they need to get the work done. There may be core hours on particular days that you assign or certain days that people have to work, but you may be able to let them be a little flexible in how they select those days. And even in a manufacturing environment, that can work. So maybe you do four tens, and the employees can choose which, of the, which four of the six days of the week that they're going to be working or how early of a start time they have. So providing even that little bit of flexibility to allow an employee to start at 6 or 7 or 8 in the morning, that can be pretty significant for um, their commitment to your company. 
The other piece is millennials have grown up with 24-7 um, technology access, so it's just a part of their lives. So when and where they work tends to be less important to them, so you want to make sure you're factoring that in. And just briefly, some of the other perks that we see out there, um, most organizations offer professional membership fee payment or read of certification and licensing fees paid to employees. 13% um, of organizations offer loans to employees for emergency or disaster assistance, and 7% offer loans for non-emergency uh, situations. Some are providing assistance with student loan repayment. Remember, millennials have a lot of debt from student loans, so that could be something you look at. And then others are providing um, matching charitable contributions, events, tickets, foods, those kind of things. So our last poll question today before we wrap up is, do you provide flexible working arrangements for your employees? So yes, all or most employees can work this way. Yes, only some employees can work this way. No, we require employees to be at the company to perform work or other. It looks like the majority of you do offer flexible uh, working arrangements, but only for some employees. And about a quarter, just over a quarter of you require work at the company, so you don't provide that. So it's something that you certainly want to look at and consider, can you do things differently? So as you think about all of those aspects of total comp that you, that we talked about today, you want to consider how you make adjustments to that total compensation picture. And one thing to do is to model options for employees or employee groups that you have in your workforce or may have in the future. So let me give you an example of what that might mean. If I decide that I'm going to offer programs that are geared toward being more competitive with the millennial workforce, I might decide to offer student loan repayment and volunteering time off or charitable contribution matching. And maybe offer health insurance with higher deductible options and life insurance at lower amounts for this stage in their lives. So you want to consider, though, how does that strategy play out not only with the different generations, but also with the different types of employees you have. So an office employee may be much more motivated by these options than an employee working on the line. Whether or not your options appeal to different workers is influenced by a number of factors, including generation, life stage, income, where they live, et cetera. And another thing to consider is that fair doesn't always mean equal. You don't have to do the same thing for every employee or every employee group, so long as you're treating your employees in a fair way. Rewarding Susie with tickets to her favorite sports event won't be a reward for Bob who hates sports. So in this sense, equal treatment would actually be more demotivating, so you'd be better off finding a different way for rewarding Bob. Fair rewards can be individualized as long as you're consistent in your application or your criteria for assessing performance being met and warranting a reward. So as you think about how you communicate total compensation and re-communicate total compensation, you also need to understand your organization's why and help frame that into your compensation culture. So that's really important for you too. Make sure you're tying it back to what you do, what you stand for, what the mission is, and that will help you to attract and retain the best employees for your organization. Not everyone's going to be the best fit. You just want the ones that align with your why and your purpose. So I know we're just over time today. I want to send it back over to Mike so he can close us out. I appreciate you being on our program today. Carrie, the first question we had come in was along the generation dis generational discussion. Um, someone asked, should I structure my compensation plans around the talent I have, which is mostly boomers and Gen Xers, or the talent that I'd like to acquire for the long term, millennials and some of the younger ones? I think you need to do a little bit of both, actually, which is probably not the answer that you're looking for, but it makes it a little bit more complicated. So you want to make sure that your um, make or your compensation plans are uh, appealing to your current employees, certainly your boomers and Xers, but you also have to make sure that you're attracting your longer-term employees. So you've you've got to do some combination of both and make sure you're addressing all the employees that you have. All right. And then the second question that we had come in was, how do we assess whether our pay is competitive uh, both locally and then regionally or nationally? 
So there are um, certain resources that you might have access to, industries publish salary surveys, the Bureau of Labor Statistics certainly publishes uh, data as well, although not usually as timely as some of the ones you have to pay for. Um, but it's something that you can look at different pay based on where you live and the geography that you're looking at because you're not always recruiting just in your local market. So it is important to look beyond your local market and think about regional or national pay as you're considering where you recruit from. And it's, it's something that um, we, can, we help clients with as well as they're looking at those options too.